Last week we started our Advent series in verse 26, seeing how God's grace came down in God's message according to God's power. And today we'll reverse directions, where instead of seeing grace come down from heaven to earth, today we will see praise go up from earth to heaven. Because that's what true worship is, it's response to God's grace, and that's what it does, it goes up. It goes up in response to the grace we see come down. So contrary to what goes up must come down. And when we're talking about true praise, true worship, uh, what comes down first then will happen before anything can go up. And so we started last week where we should in 26 to 38, seeing how grace came down in the life of Mary by way of a message from heaven sent by God, delivered by Gabriel the angel, a message of good news, of power that was going to work in Mary's life and then go from there to work for all history for the good of humanity in Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's where we were and now this is where we are today. And we want to see the example that Mary sets, a model of true worship and um, fitting even to see it, to admire it. Um, not to put it on a pedestal, but to see an example of true worship from the Scriptures and then to aspire to do the same this holiday season. Uh, that we would be filled with that exaltation of what we get the word, the magnificent, the, the exaltation, my soul exalts in the Lord, is where we want to be this holiday season. And there's no better place that we can look, and for all of church history, no better place the churches look to say, what is true worship like? What's it about? Well, we get to see it and hear it today in Mary's wonderful prayer of praise. So read with me uh, from verses 46 all the way down to 55. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Behold, from this time on for generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. This is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but his word endures forever. Uh, Maybe you picked up a copy of Time Magazine this week. Not that there's magazine racks hanging around anymore, so maybe you found it come to you in your feed that it was the annual um, revealing of their person of the year. And no, it wasn't me, in case you're wondering. Uh, I vote for Curtis every year, actually. (laughs) But um, you would have found out that they, uh, they would have thought that the Messiah came all over again in awarding Taylor Swift the person of the year. Um, She was not an itinerant rabbi born in Bethlehem, lived to the age of 33. She's a 33-year-old singer-songwriter from Pennsylvania. And the article written about her as being the person of the year was one of messianic proportions, right from the start. Swift's life, I quote, is one about redemption, where a protagonist discovers new happiness, not despite challenges, but because of them. 
quoting her, I've been given a tiara and then had it taken away. It's not just that her life is one about redemption. The story went on to say, her celebrity is so great, I quote, to discuss her movements, not talking about dance movements, by the way, the impact she has on society. To discuss her movements felt like discussing politics or the weather, a language spoken so widely it needed no context. She became the main character of the world in 2023. You think the people of Ukraine would say that? You know, their, their life hangs in the balance on her next movement. How about in the Middle East? You think her concerts are the talk of the town? It's not that just um, her celebrity is so great. Her value is so high, it seems that governments rest on her shoulders. Quote, analysts talk about the Taylor effect. As politicians from Thailand, Hungary, and Chile implored her to play their countries, cities, stadiums, and streets were renamed for her. And finally, um, her concerts, quote, are a religious experience. The crowd is rapturous and swift beatific as she gazes out at us, all high on the same drug. That much is true. Her fans are singularly passionate as they analyze clues, hints, and secret messages in everything from her choreography to her costumes. Swifties are the modern-day equivalent of cults who consistently have inaccurate rapture predictions. That actually was a great line. Why do I mention this article? Well, these things fall into my hands. They, they find me, and some weeks they find me, and there's just an obvious contrast to that which we just read in Luke 1. On a human level, the contrast of what the world sees in Taylor Swift as important with what we see in Mary. But I would say deeper than that is what it continues to teach us about our own humanity. Uh, this article, further proof that no matter who you are or what upbringing you have, everyone is a worshiper. It's not a matter of if you worship. It's just a matter of who or what. And persons of the year, be they celebrity or politician, somehow is revealing to us something about our society and, and what we hold high and who we hold in that highest regard. And what is it they do that captivates us, which also may say something about what we're captivated by. This morning, I wanted us to think about worship, and it seemed a contrast to start was fitting, a contrast of two women. For Mary, her worship is absolutely not about getting any attention for herself. It's undeniably about God in every regard, and that's what we want to learn from today. We want to see what true worship looks like, sounds like, the proper attitude and actions that worship requires. And um, as we go through 46 to 55, uh, we will look at it through um, four different parts that uh, if you want to gauge your worship of Christ this holiday, uh, the first part is going to be the most important part, which is to understand that worship starts on the inside. And from that springs humility, part number two we'll see. And yet humility sees God's redemption, the third part of true worship. And then finally, it stays on God's promises as part of His redemption. So your, your good outline this morning is 
True worship starts on the inside, springs from humility, sees God's redemption, and stays fixed on God's promises. However, in the spirit of Christmas carols, I uh, put an outline together from the song, We Wish You a Merry Christmas. And uh, in uh, no unexpected uh, way, uh, two pieces of feedback from that outline in first service. One person's like, that's the greatest outline you've ever done. And then Vicky in the front row by point four when I lamented uh, this lousy outline, she amended it. So there you have the polls. You may find yourself somewhere in between. Why did he use a Christmas carol for this? I don't know. It seemed right at the time. So let's start on the inside. We wish you a Merry Christmas. If you're going to do that, if you're going to be all about the true Christmas spirit, the focus on Christ, and really have that joy on the inside, um, it has to start on the inside. True worship comes from within. We see that in 46 and 47. It's very obvious. Mary's response to when she goes to meet Elizabeth after getting the good news from Gabriel the angel, her first response is, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. It's, it's, it's a psalm-like uh, synonymous parallelism where she's repeating the same thing, just saying a little bit a different way. There's not something we should make between what's the difference between my soul and my spirit. It's the inner person. It's all of you on the inside giving God all of the praise He deserves. And the two verbs that describe that worship, one is exaltation and one is um, elation in the sense of joy. She's exalting, she's lifting high, she's making much of the Lord as a result of what she now knows she is in for. And her spirit is rejoicing in God, her Savior rejoicing. It's, it's not just enough for her to exalt God, she is delighting in that exaltation. She's overjoyed in a way that it is expressing itself outwardly, and that's just a wonderful starting point for our hearts, our souls and spirits, isn't it today? I mean, even just to rewind the tape 20 minutes, were you singing from the heart? Was it coming from within, or were you kind of dependent on, hey, I hope they picked the right jams today that helped me you know, get into it? Because if you need the right jam stylistically, uh, maybe an indicator that you're not necessarily coming from the inside. There's something external going on that you're dependent on for your worship to come out of. Did the rainy day bring you down? We're all human here. It can. But, but is your worship this morning conditioned on there being bright skies this Sunday? Versus saying, Lord, what? those externals have nothing to do with what has to start inside of me. I mean, look no further than the context of Mary. There's nothing going on around her in the scene that would, would indicate to us that her worship was dependent on anything else but what was coming out from what was already where? On the inside. I mean, it's just, she just had a great conversation with her cousin I mean, sure, that's, that's something, but there's no band playing here. There's no uh, lighting and, and some mood, some atmosphere that we get the Magnificat. But she comes from the soul. And um, all true soul worship, it's, it's soul music. It's, it's what Psalm 103 starts with. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. It's something on the inside that, that just rises up in Mary. Nothing on the outside other than what informs a heart that is worshiping is the word of God. I mean, what she has just been given, revelation from heaven and confirmation from her cousin Elizabeth, is the word feeding her soul so that we could say Mary is an example of true worship. If true worship is going to be defined by the one definition for it in the New Testament from Jesus and John 4, my Father is seeking true worshipers, those who do what? Worship in spirit and truth. So there's your definition for worship. Rather than go around the horn in life group this week, hey, what's true worship? How about just take the definition Jesus gives? Who do, who's God seeking? He's seeking true worshipers. And how do they worship? The inner person in spirit and truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? We see it in Mary right here. It's coming from the inside. Well, that's spiritual. That's a spirit-led person. To worship in spirit means you're born of the spirit. John 3. Nicodemus is wondering, how's one born again? Jesus answers, no one's born again unless you're born of the Spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you're not worshiping. I mean, you can do the Taylor Swift variety. You can have a religious experience with music or whatever else it is that suits your fancy. But to worship in spirit means you have the Holy Spirit. And so it's coming from the inside. You're a spiritual person. John 3, 8. This is, this is how you know. Everyone who is born of the Spirit has been born again. You're not waiting for a second blessing of the Spirit to come. You have all of the Spirit that you're ever going to get when you are saved. So back to Luke. For, for Mary to be exalting in the Lord and rejoicing in God her Savior means she is first and foremost Spirit-led. And then this whole passage is the second part of that inner person about Mary. She's word-fed. That What we read, what you hear in her words are a compilation of her teenage lifetime of hearing, as Jeremiah 15, 16 would say, eating the word of God. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I've been called by your name. Mary is spirit-led and word-fed. The combination of those two things is at the heart of true worship. You can take the 140 words in your English translation. I counted them, at least in the NAS. In 46 to 55. And you'll find echoes of at least 35 different Old Testament passages. I'm not saying direct quotes necessarily, but allusion and echo and paraphrase of the Old Testament all over the place. Some direct quotes, verse 50, verse 53, going to the Psalms, particularly Psalm 103. But what this is teaching us is that Mary's worship, her soul has been saturated by the Word of God not sprinkled. I mean, it's evidence. She has, she has no Bible to open up to like I need. It's just coming out of her because it's already been put in her. The whole principle of deposit and withdrawal, right? That if you're going to teach your kids finances, you can't take something out that hasn't been put in. 
This holiday season, you're buying gifts for people out of that checking account, not on credit card. Why? Because you've made some deposits. There's something to get out. And so in, Mary, in this moment in Mary's life, this high point of her life to this point, in this exaltation, what comes out has been what's been going in. And it's been the Word of God, now carried by the Spirit of God, that produces our first point. True worship starts on the inside, and it's Spirit-led and Word-fed. Now, that shouldn't come as anything new to us, because just a few weeks ago, we were in Ephesians 5, talking about be filled with the Spirit, right? And that was connected to the passage in Colossians 3 that says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what was the result from both of those synonymous ways to describe the true Christian life. The end result was the same. We speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Mary's doing that well before Paul wrote it. It's evidence of true worship. We talk about being Christ-exalting and word-centered at HBC. That's nothing new. We're just following her example. I will make one other observation that I guess hits me as a parent and reading through Luke and some of the other Gospels, when, when, I, when I was studying this line, my spirit has rejoiced in God. You see actually that later in Luke chapter 10. But it's not Mary's spirit that's rejoicing in God anymore. It's Jesus' spirit. Same phrase. Rejoicing greatly, except rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, praising God as Father in heaven. Luke 10, 21, after his apostles had come out from the mission, he sent them on, and they're all jazzed up that they went out in the power of the Spirit and did miracles in his name. And he says, look, what's the greater miracle? Is that your name is recorded in heaven. Salvation. Greatest thing you can give God praise for. Not to say the other things don't matter. But Jesus is saying, hey, keep the main thing the main thing. And as he is, he, he is caught up in, in this wonderful plan of salvation for these apostles, then he turns to heaven, rejoices greatly in the Spirit, just like his mama. And I guess why I thought of that is because parents, self at the front of the line, need to be what? Saturated in the Scripture so it overflows from us into our kids. You don't think that's how Mary lived her life when Jesus was growing up? Singing in front of him, praying with him, and that some of the, that same spiritual life that Mary had from her teenage years didn't rub off on Jesus? As he grew, as we learn in Luke, in the wisdom and stature of the Lord, that, that wasn't just, ta-da! Jesus on his own, independent of anybody else's influence, knows it all, grows it all. No. God uses means to ends even in the life of the Son of God, the Son of Mary. In his humanity was being taught the scriptures, heard them sung, heard them prayed. Maybe that's why when we go back to Luke 2 and she mentions the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. We hear echoes of it when Jesus is asked by his disciples in Matthew 6, how should I pray? And he answers, our Father who's in heaven, holy is his name. We don't know where that came from. Maybe it was just in the moment he said it or maybe he heard his mom pray that way. Parents, don't miss this. Grandparents, this isn't so much a call for you to 
force your kids to read their Bibles and memorize Scripture. The first call is for us to be saturated in it. And the overflow of our lives will feed their souls. We sow and we water, but God brings the growth, even in the life of baby Jesus. Mary contributed to that. So the first angle of true worship that we see here today is that it comes from the inside, spirit-led and word-fed from her inner person. How's your soul this morning? Could could be very easy in answering that question to jump to the externals, right? Versus just, no, what's going on in my heart this morning? Is there rejoicing? Is there exaltation? And you just cut to the the root of it. Why would Mary rejoice? Why would she exalt? Because verse 47, God's her Savior. It's right there. God's her Savior. Definitely, as we talked about last week, it pokes holes in the um, idea that she was sinless, doesn't it? Sinless people don't need saviors. They're innocent. Right? If Mary, was in, if Mary was sinless, then she was innocent. And if she was innocent, she was right before God. She doesn't seem to see it that way. She needs saved just like everybody else. She needs a deliverer. She needs a rescuer. And she recognizes it's not her. It's God, her Savior. So that's the first thing we see is worship must start on the inside. And then as it starts on the inside, it it springs forth as it goes up out of humility. The second picture we get of true worship this morning. That we can bring good tidings to others. We can speak of the good things of God when first our own heart has been humbled before Him to recognize our own need and His great supply. Mary says in 48, He has had regard for me, for the humble state of his bond slave. We looked at that line in verse 38 last week. Mary said, behold the bond slave of the Lord, this idea that I submit willingly to what the word of God given to me has to say about my life. May it be done to me according to your word. And here she repeats it. I'm just the the, the bond slave. She doesn't say for he has chosen me to be in the exalted state as God's mother. No. Her her sense of her own worthiness has not changed one bit. But what it's rooted in is this idea of regard. That's the key phrase there. It's it's an idea of being um, noticed. Being seen. Which is human in us, right? You know, we, we like to be noticed for good things, not the bad things. We like somebody, especially if you're thinking, I mean, she's talking about God, her Savior. She's talking about the Mighty One who's done great things. Holy is His name. Behold, generations will remember me for this. Why? Because I've been regarded by God, not because something great about me, what He's going to do through me. He's remembered me. He's seen me. He's noticed me. And we can connect to that because we like that same regard to be given to us, don't we? I mean, have you ever been helped when somebody that you held in high regard noticed you? 
applauded you, encouraged you? On the other side, have you ever been hurt by the person that you maybe had held up high and they just passed you right by? This uh, January, maybe 20, it was 2024, so it might be the 14-year anniversary of the uh, opportunity I had back in Hollywood um, to meet my childhood icon, hero. Um, I, I want to protect his identity this morning. So um, you would just know him from movies that are five letters long and start with the letter R. And um, I was working in an Italian restaurant that he happened to purchase. And um, so this stallion needed some Italian food to eat. And I was called upon to deliver said meal to his Beverly Hills estate. Uh, I was trusted by my manager not to do anything stupid, even though he knew how big of a fan I was. So I, and it was Super Bowl Sunday. And so I loaded up the company van and drove it up there and got to his house. And I was, I was pretty pumped just on the idea of getting to go to his house. But then I had the, the idea that maybe, you know, we'll hit it off and he'll ask me to stay and watch football with him. So I go in there with really high expectations. And um, through a cloud of cigar smoke, um, the only line I heard from him was, put the food there. I don't even think he looked up. You know what I mean? That, that word he had regard, he looked. I didn't get eye contact. I didn't get a yo at him. Nothing. This is where you want the food? Anything else? I mean, I could, you know, take it out and I could... Hang out, watch the TV. Okay, if that's a low moment, so be it. But, I mean, this is, this is the highest moment of Mary's humble state, to be regarded by God. But she's not, she's exalting in Him. Do you see the, the interplay between 47, 46, 47, and 48? She's not exalting in herself. She's, if she's doing anything, she's, Exalting in being, being humbled, being noticed. And I don't think a hum, there's a humble brag at the end of 48. Hey, behold, from this time on, all generations will count me as blessed. Um, I think even that phrase might be in her mind, because, thanks to her cousin Elizabeth, because she's the one that said in just probably moments prior to this, cried out actually with a loud voice because uh, Zacharias uh, can't hear right now or speak, so she can scream as loud as she wants in the house. She cries out with a loud voice, thanks. Uh, Blessed are you among women. You know, when I've seen it with Shannon, somebody else pregnant, she's pumped up and not screaming, but Shannon gets pumped. And blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. I, I, I mean, why this? I mean, prior to this, we skipped 39 to 45, but it's an amazing section because I think it reveals something about uh, Mary, like has this good news given to her about this Messiah being born to her as a virgin, but I, I would imagine why she immediately goes to Elizabeth is because in verse 36, the angel said, hey, your cousin who's been barren, who's probably in her 70s or 80s, has also conceived a child. So why would she choose to go to Elizabeth first, even though she was in uh, you know, Nazareth and uh, her, her cousin is in a city in Judah, so probably a day's journey, is because she probably thought on a human level, this is the only person that's going to believe me because she's been barren. So if there's anybody that's going to have something to say other than, really, you're a virgin, but you're gonna, you're, you've conceived a child. Okay. No, she goes to the one woman that she could think of that 
she, if she believes by faith not only that what the angel said to Mary is true, she's also believing that what's said about Elizabeth is true. And so they meet up in 39 to 45, and, and Elizabeth is elated as well. She's excited. Part of that is because the prophet John, who's already spirit-filled in her womb, has made his first prophetic kick. Verse 41. And I mean that. He didn't leap in her womb by accident. He was as spirit-filled and moved in that moment as a six-month-old in her womb as he was when he walked into Jerusalem saying, prepare the way of the Lord. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. He can use you when you're in the womb or when you're 30 out in the wilderness. And so Mary is maybe carrying on the, the idea of what Elizabeth gave her in verse 48, saying, hey, I will be I will be counted as blessed. Verse 49, why? Because of who God is. The mighty one has done great things for me. And his, her final line of praise in, in 49, holy is his name. He's done all this for me. She's overwhelmed at the character of God. He's mighty. He's holy. And then verse 50, in her humble state, she is not just thinking about herself. Verse 50, she's thinking of Psalm 103.17, and his mercy is on all generations towards those who fear him. This praise isn't contained just to her. She is thinking of all peoples in all times who, thanks to the good news of God's grace in her life, the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on all those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. She sees herself standing in that line of redemption, both the river running to her and then through her and beyond her in all generations, based on those people who in fear recognize God is holy and God is mighty and God is merciful. Those three qualities of God's character. You put those three together and you're back in verse 47. A holy God and a powerful God and a merciful God is the only God that can save you. Uh, some of you here today not in Christ, might tell me after if we talked, you know, I believe in a higher power. You might not have a problem with verse 49, the mighty one. You know, there are a lot of um, proud people who still say they believe in a higher power. All kind of interviews. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that the world in, in those, whether they're high or low, have a problem with God's mightiness. Um... It's His holiness and mercy that gets you tripped up, isn't it? Because if He's holy, then you might owe Him something, right? There might be an expectation to be holy as He is holy. And then adding to that, if He's merciful, it means you need saved. You can't, you don't have the power within yourself to change yourself. You can't achieve His standard of holiness. And if you were to die for your sins, that's all you would die for. You, you would not, if you died for your own sins, you would not receive any vindication there. You would just get what you deserve from a holy and powerful God. It's His mercy that we throw ourselves on. So for you this morning, if, if you're not in Christ, maybe you have to think about God in these 
different qualities of his character. If he's going to save you, first, do you, I mean, like most people, can you confess that he's all-powerful and you're not? Admit your weakness. Can you confess that he's holy and he does require something of you? And then can you praise him when you confess his mercy? That because you can't live up to his holy standard, he has to what? He has to give the perfect one for you. And he gave his son to do that. And that's when you're not just talking about God as a higher power. You're talking about God, your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The God that came down as man to live the perfect life that you couldn't live so that God could be merciful to you by being just towards him. Him taking your punishment on the cross. That perfect one. That holy one. Out of what? Motivated out of nothing outside of his own love. The great mercy of God. Would you receive that this morning? Would you recognize your need for that? And call out to him, God be merciful to me. I mean, that's what the sinner cries. Not God be holy to me, God be powerful to me. Those things are set, those things are fixed. What you need to recognize in that call for mercy is how much you are desperately needing it. Because you know you're in state before him. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ this morning, right where he finds you. Do you see yourself like Mary this morning? That he has put you here in that seat for this message at this time. No matter how far off you felt you are from him to say, I see you. I have regard for you. I've noticed you. Your life and what you've been going through and how you've been hiding or where you've been hasn't escaped me. So what are you going to do with that then today? Are you going to continue to hide, continue to run? Or run to Him? That's what Advent's all about. It's, it's He's come to us so that we can what respond to His call to come to Him by trusting in Christ today for forgiveness of your sins. Which leads where Mary goes next to want to sing of the great plan of redemption of God. She's shown us what true worship is by way of its inner quality, its humble quality. But then, verses 51 to 53, it moves to the good dessert of God's promises in the gospel. Is that It's His plan of redemption is the ultimate reason we have to praise Him. I mean, if you had to say, what's, what's the high point of why we would praise God? It's 51 to 53, that in all his power and in all his glory and in all his holiness and his mercy, he acts on his people's behalf. It's the act of redemption that Mary begins to praise in 51 to 53. Uh, and this tells us something about her as she first in verse 51 starts talking about the mighty deeds God can do with his arm. How he can scatter those who are proud. He can bring down rulers no matter how mighty and he can exalt those no matter who and how low they are. What's she doing there? She's doing far more than just uh, quoting scripture. Uh, this scripture saturated teenager understands redemption. Like she gets the big picture here. She's connected all the passages. Psalm 103, Psalm 2, Psalm 98. 
Isaiah 40 through 53, where you, you can read Isaiah 40 to 53 this week and you'll hear echoes from what Mary is saying here. Of course, read 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah's prayer. You'll find it all in Mary's prayer here. But what she's doing, she's taking all those different passages in different parts of the scripture, even going all the way back to Exodus 3, where we first hear about the strong arm of the Lord when God tells Moses, I will deliver you from Pharaoh with my strong arm. Not by your own might, but my might. He told Moses, I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with my miracles that I'll do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. Mary is going back as far as Exodus and all the way to where she stands this present day. She sees herself in the story of redemption, which is at the heart of all true worship. Yeah, there's a lot of other subplots and storylines in the Bible we can get excited for. But if we aren't excited for redemption, we're missing it. And that's what Mary displays to us. This mighty arm of God. Psalm 98.1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He's done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Isaiah 52, 9 and 10. This, this goes beyond just a, a promise to, to Israel and God's good tidings to them and blessing to them. This is a promise for his victory in the world. Isaiah 52, 9 and 10, when the prophet writes, Break forth and shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. See, he may do it in Jerusalem. He, he may have done it through Christ on the cross, but all the nations, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. That's us. And Mary understands it. And she's praising God for it. This plan of redemption. She also sees how redemption is a, um, is a reversal. Look at 52 53, that redemption contains this great reversal, that those who are high will be brought low, and those who are low will be lifted up. Is that not all of our stories? What do you mean like those who are high? Like any of us before Christ who thought highly of ourselves. Um, if Christ saved you when you were really young, you just didn't get maybe enough of a running start to just you know, really believe your own hype. But if you were saved later in life, you probably believed your own hype long enough to where reality kicked in at some point. And life knocked you down and kicked you while you were down for you to realize, okay, I'm not in control. God will do it in any way on His timetable. Why? Because he, He's not going to be worshipped by the proud. Those who exalt in themselves. He'll bring them down and he'll exalt those who are humble. Verse 53, another reversal. He'll fill the hungry with good things, but send away the rich empty-handed. What's she talking about there? She's not like a pre-Marxist, okay? She's not reading critical theory. Um, the gospel is not about the, uh, the wealth being taken from the rich and redistributed to the poor. That's not what this verse is about. This verse is a picture. It's a picture of two types of people. One person comes with empty hands, humbly saying, what do you, whatever you have to give me, God, I'll eat. 
whatever it is a good thing, you'll give it. And the other person, the rich, the, 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 the sated, the satisfied, uh, they're sent away empty-handed, not, not because of anything in God, but because of them. The person that already has so much of this world, that's clutching so tightly to the things that the world can offer, they, if they come to God to get something, they can't be filled because their hands are clenched, aren't they? I have this stuff, and I like it, like that rich young ruler. Well, open your hands and drop it, and I'll give you the good thing. I, I can't do it. So that's how the rich are sent away empty-handed, because they're self-satisfied. There is nothing negative being spoken here against wealth. Everything's God's, and he, and he disperses it as he chooses. And, and wealth can be used for wonderful things, but its greatest danger is when it gives us, it gives us the illusion of self-sufficiency. What can God give to the man who is deceived into thinking he already has everything he needs? For the, I think, fourth consecutive year, um, attempting to read through Dickens' Christmas Carol with my kids, like the real version, and we, like three years running, we, it gets to Christmas and we're still in like the ghost of Christmas past. It's just slow going. And so, uh, enlisting the help of my sons, we're reading it each night. And um, when, when Scrooge is taken to see his past, and after he goes and watches the party at Fezziwick's and how happy he was there with this generous boss contrasted with what he's become, then he sees a final scene that he can't bear to see. It's when he lost his love. And she says to him, Ebenezer, I figured out why you don't love me anymore gain. That's what she calls it. You've fallen in love with gain. Your whole life has been consumed by gain. The rich are sent away empty-handed. The person who, it's gain. Everything's gain. I, I gotta get this next thing. I gotta get this next promotion. I gotta get this next check. I gotta get my kids this next thing. Gain, 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 gain. It's a warning here. I just, I gotta grab that next thing. Then what, what appetite will you have to be hungry for God's good things and his plan of redemption? What will you be hungry for if you're already filled up with what the world has to feed you with? It's the third movement of true worship. It's seeing the greatest gift to praise God for is the gift of redemption. And then out of that redemption, we get one more angle of praise, 54-55. It's um, once you've seen the great gift of redemption, then you stay on His promises. You, you, you look at the big picture of God's redemption in your life and for all of His children, and you, you stay fixed on His promises. You won't go until you get some. That was actually the only line I liked for my outline today, and I shoehorned the rest in, a mistake I'll probably make again. But really, that's what she's saying in 54 to 55. I'm staying on your promises, God. I understand your plan of redemption, and the reason I understand it is because you promised it. 54, he's given help to Israel, his servant, 
Why? In remembrance of his mercy. And again, back to the mercy of God to his people. In remembrance of, he's given help in remembrance of his mercy. Is Mary saying that God forgets? No. We forget. What we have to remember is that God doesn't forget. That's what she's saying in 54. I mean, God is all-wise, all-knowing, eternal. There's nothing he's missing as if he needs reminded. We need the reminder. So Mary is reminding herself and remembering the promise of God that he spoke to her fathers, going all the way back to Genesis 15, blessing to the world. Genesis 3, maybe. The seed of a woman will crush the head of the serpent. Going back thousands of years, staying on the promises of God. And then she goes forward to his descendants forever. He's an eternal God. He never forgets a thing. So who needs the remembering? We do, his children. Our children are good at that, aren't they? Reminding of us of what we forget. The difference between us and God is we actually do forget. I forget 90% of the stuff I tell them. That's why last night, probably 10 minutes after I said something to my kids, one of them was like, Dad, remember? How many times parents do you hear that? Dad, Mom, remember when you said? And I was like, what did I say? We're going to watch a movie tonight. When did I say that? 10 minutes ago. Really? I want that commercial where I could throw the red flag. Let's look on replay. And I would be wrong 90% of the time I get it. But just 10% of the time, it'd be nice to be vindicated. Mary is just looking back from what she understands being word-fed, her, her life, and she, she sees the big picture. That God is not forgetting everything. It's we need the reminder. The, the promises of God happening for her in this moment, go thousands of years back and go eternity forward. So that's it. You want to talk about what true worship is this month? Is it coming from your inner person? Is it springing from humility? Are you, are you taking time to think about God's redemption and are you staying fixed on the promises of God? We already talked about the challenge of the inner worship and... Maybe as we apply this to our lives right now, talk about our hearts being humbled. It's hard for us sometimes when we get in, in a groove of pride, thinking we're owed from God. It's hard to worship Him, isn't it? If maybe there's some root of bitterness, maybe something recent, maybe something going back a ways that you still haven't come to grips with with God. And that will steal your worship. Because there's still something in you that might be exalting in what you expect. You know, exalting in self. You know, that idea that I know better than him. And he should have done this for me. You know, thinking about um, his, his plan of redemption. You know, that he fills the hungry with good things. As we ask our hearts, are we, are we humble and thankful children in what God has given us to eat? When we ask him in prayer for something and we, we don't get it, that we are okay with his no being as good as his yes. You know, when he says yes to the requests we have, we, we, we are satisfied with that meal immediately, aren't we? Because that's what we were hungry for. 
There's this thing that we want and we're asking and asking and he gives it and he has the prerogative in his providence to give it. But when he gives us a meal that we didn't ask for, it's still a meal, right? He fills the hungry with good things. It might not be the meal we want and we might sit there like our children do or did back in the day, refusing to eat. But here's the great thing about your father in heaven. He understands your frame, Psalm 103. He knows you're like dust. He knows you don't always have the appetite for what he's answering. And he's, he's, he can deal with that. He's, he's, still, he's not going to change the menu. If his answer was no, it was no. But he'll give you time to get there. And, and part of that is his humbling of us. And, and there's no um, expiration date on the need for us to be humbled right until he brings us home. Last, as we think about God's promises, remembering his mercies in your life. Um, can you, if in the immediate right now, um, you, you don't see his mercies new today. Uh, for your soul's good, can you go back to some older mercies to help your heart? Or um, is your worship limited by this idea of, hey God, what have you done for me lately? Is your faith only as strong as God's most recent blessing in your life? Or is, can you go back to the storehouse? Or said another way, is your faith as weak as what you perceive as God's latest curse on you or chastisement of you? I'm not saying there's been a bunch of good things that have happened to you recently. But if you're in Christ, they're all under his control. And if you can't find your, the ability to rejoice in the most recent things because they don't seem like blessings right now, then go back further. Just keep going like Mary did. She can go back as far as Abraham. How far back can you go? And just say, if I don't see it today, if I didn't see it yesterday, maybe I need to rewind the tape a year. And then maybe I can work my way forward from there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your loving kindness and patience to us. Thank you for your mercies that are new. Even the mercy of this message of helping us see your servant, Mary. Seeing worship from, from the inside view from her heart, humbled, amazed by your plan of redemption, building her life on your promises. We pray we would do the same by the power of your spirit today. Amen.